So as I mentioned in light of singing that song, Jesus is indeed the chain breaker, the one who sets us free. And that's what he's here to declare today as we look at the Gospel of Luke. Perhaps you've had this experience. How many of you here grew up in a different city than Rochester? Anyone? That's happened to me. I grew up in Oakland, California. I left there for good, as a resident at least, in 1992 to come out to the Midwest to go to seminary in Chicago and, and, you know, had opportunities to come back and visit. But what's interesting is to see the way the city has changed since I've been gone. Roads are more congested. Even street names have changed. The Raiders came back and are getting ready to leave again. And then, you know, just my neighbors have changed. The funny, funny incident this last summer, just real quickly. So we were goofing around playing volleyball in my front yard, and the ball went over the fence, and to our, my, there's a new neighbor. So I knocked on the door, and you know, nobody was there, and I'm going, oh, that's, no, it hasn't bothered neighbors in the past. So I just went in their backyard to look for the ball, and this lady came out and said, who are you? You know, and she would have known me if it would have been my past neighbor, but it, it wasn't. That had changed, Right? And things have just changed. Even my home church, you know, I don't know the leadership. And they don't know me anymore. And it's kind of interesting to see how that's changed. But the thing is that I've changed as well. I've changed. I left there as a young man. Now I'm married, have children. I'm a pastor. I live in the Midwest. Some things have changed about me. But it's interesting to see people relate to me in the same way they did even when I was, you know, 21 years old. Just kind of interesting to, to watch that. It's interesting because sometimes people kind of put you in a box to who they think you are. And that's what happens to Jesus today. As he'll return to his hometown and they are not ready for the change of role that he is going to put forth. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to Luke chapter 4. But before we, we uh, get into God's Word, I just want to pray for us. So Lord, I want to uh, ask that you would open the eyes of our heart. That we would see you as that, that chain breaker. The one who sets us free. The one who opens the eyes of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace to respond better than... How people responded to you that very first time as you returned home. So Lord, do in, your, in your, your mercy, your good work in our lives. If you need us to, to change and repent, I pray you'd give us grace to do so. If you need us just to call out to you, I pray you'd give us grace to call out to you and, and have you release us from our chains. And if you just are calling us to, to hold on, to keep our hope focused on you, pray you'd give us grace to do that as well. So use your word today to speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is Luke 4, and we're just going to look at these two verses for the moment, and then we'll, as the story unfolds, we'll go to the, the following verses. But this is Luke 4, chapter, verses 14, and verses 14 and 15. So it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him had spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. 
these last few weeks, we've seen that Jesus is getting ready to launch his public ministry. It started with him going to be baptized by John the Baptist in order that he might identify with us as sinners, that we might identify with him as our Savior. And we see the, all three persons of the Godhead acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. We see the Holy Spirit come down like a dove, that he shows that he is the one who has the Spirit without measure. We hear, the Holy, we hear God's voice say, You are my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And after that encounter... He is full of the Holy Spirit and he is driven into the wilderness to do battle. To do battle with the devil who will tempt him in ways that he has tempted us. Only contrary to Adam or ourselves, Jesus overcomes him and uh, is victorious that we might have our victory in him. So now, as he comes out of that, he is led by the Holy Spirit into this public arena and he starts his ministry. He starts his mission. And, and the first thing I just want to say, Jesus makes a name for himself in his home region. And there's a few things that I want you to notice here, just in these two verses. He's in Galilee. Jesus enters this public ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come out of his battle with the devil kind of beleaguered and beat up. He's walking into this in power. And so there is, there is power in keeping in step with the will of the Father. And Jesus is not just coming to be a do-gooder. He's not coming just to heal and feed people. He's preaching a message, a life-changing message that he's expecting people to respond to. But he's coming back to Galilee. Let's just show the slide up there real quick, Josh. So... This is the area of Galilee. I get to use my nerd uh, laser pointer here. And so he's kind of up here with Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, Gennesaret, Magdala, Tiberias. His hometown is here. He hasn't been there yet. But this is kind of a, kind of a Wild West area. Down here is, is Jerusalem and Judea. And if you're the, trying to keep your kind of Jewish pedigree, really that's where you should be. But Jesus is not doing that. He's up here in this, in this kind of wild and woolly area because they're in contact with, with Gentiles. This place here, Zipporah, it's a, it's a Gentile out, outpost here. So um, this is area is kind of not considered so much the, the place where a, a true Jew would hang out. But It'd be kind of like Jesus or one of us going to like Albert Lee or Austin and kind of starting out their ministry, right? And he's becoming famous, he's having an impact, and his word is spreading. The word is spreading. So now it's time for him to go home. But how are God's people, or how are the people of Nazareth going to respond? So pick it up here at verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery for the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. Bam. Jesus declares his mission in his hometown. He's reading this passage out of Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, and I just want to take it apart real quickly. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In order for a prophet to be a real prophet of God, it has to be generated by the Holy Spirit within him. But it seemed like there was a 400-year period where God seemed to be silent, that the Spirit was not at work. But, but now, as we see in Luke, the Spirit is at work. We see it in Elizabeth, in Zechariah, in Mary. We see it in Simeon. We see it in Anna, in John the Baptist. And now we see it in Jesus himself. And he's basically saying, listen, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's going to speak through me. The words of God are going to come through me. And he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Anointed literally means to have oil put on you. But it was a symbol. A symbol that God has chosen you. You have been appointed to this office. And Jesus is appointed to this office Indeed, he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah to proclaim this good news. In fact, he is the good news. And he's here to deal with issues that are deeper than just the exterior circumstances of Rome being there. He's there to address issues and matters of the heart. And so he says he's there to proclaim good news to the poor. He's not just talking to those who are financially poor. Although, I will say this. Oftentimes people that are financially poor, they're aware that they have a need. And so it gives them a sense of humility. But Jesus is addressing more so the poverty in our soul. In fact, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount will say, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. It's those who recognize their own spiritual deficit. Folks, I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I look around in this world and I am angry at the spiritual depravity and deficit we have in our society. What happened in Florida with those young kids getting shot at that school, it makes me go, we... We're a problem society. And those are just symptoms. Those are just symptoms. And sometimes, in my own heart and mind, I want to imagine what it would be like for me to exact justice and try and make those things right. But you know, as I find as I go down that trail, I find that my heart has a deficit. I find that I've got issues. I've got things And I need God to address that. But here's the thing. Again, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you understand your poverty, then Jesus can come and do something. He can come and give you a new heart, a new nature, and make you a new creation. And he goes on to say, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now I'm sure there were some people who were in Herod's jail or, or Rome's jail, but he wasn't just addressing those who were incarcerated physically. He, was, came, he came to address those who are chained by sin, by hatred, by bitterness, by fear. And the truth of the matter is, all of us are heading for a death sentence. He's come to set us free from sin and death. To release us from that. To have absolute confidence that because He is risen again, we can have life in Him. And have sight for the blind. Not just those who are physically blind, although Jesus will heal people who are blind. And by the way, if you look at the Scripture, there's no other person that heals someone that's blind except Jesus, except for a man named Ananias, who Jesus sends to a man named Saul, who is spiritually blind and has his scales removed. But this becomes a metaphor, a physical metaphor of having your sight changed from being blind to who God is, to who the, the Savior is, and having that removed. Jesus says, I'm here to give sight to open the eyes of your heart to have understanding for who he is. You know, there's an old hymn, and we, many of us can sing it, but one of the lyrics is what? I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. Anyone have an experience before Christ, and I was blind. I, I thought following Jesus was complete foolishness. But then he opened his, your eyes and said, it's like, now I see the life and the light he gave me. That's what Jesus came, comes to do and came to do. And to set the oppressed free, Luke actually incorporates a verse from Isaiah 58.6 here. This is not necessarily political or economic oppression. But as we've just seen, Jesus has come from a very real confrontation with a very real spiritual enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy Satan. And he's here to set us free from his influence. As we'll see a little bit later, Jesus is actually going to have to cast out demons from people who are captivated by Satan. But in Christ, we can resist this enemy. In Christ, we can push back and cast out the one who's oppressing our souls. And even if we fail, we are still forgiven. We are still forgiven. How many of you hear the voice of the enemy? from time to time saying (laughs) 
How could God use you? How could God love you? Because what you've done, how you failed. (laughs) Yeah, you put on a good show at church, but you know who you really are. But Jesus sets us free. Because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, because we put on Christ. We put on Christ, and when God looks at us, He sees Jesus' righteousness, not our failure. And that is good news. That is a grace-filled reality to live in. Folks, I hope that you are putting on Christ every day and knowing that your righteousness is in Him. That is a great offense, a great offensive weapon against our enemy that you can be set free from. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This message came earlier when Jesus was born. But here's the deal. The God is for us. God is actually for us. He's not sitting there waiting for us to mess up with a hammer and then going to nail us as soon as we do it. No, God is for us. Yeah, he sees, he sees our failure. He sees our sin. He sees that we're disconnected by our sin. But that's why he sent Jesus. And it echoes the words of the angels when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. God is for us. It's the message that the anointed one is for us in God. And it's through him that God reconciles us and restores us to himself. The amazing thing about this is this, right? It's not that we reach out to God and try and make things right before him. No, he reached out to us in sending his son, in Jesus entering into history to come and live this life and deal with our sin, deal with our depravity, to live a life that we couldn't live and pay the price we couldn't pay. The year of the Lord's favor. It's an amazing thing. The question still looms though. How do we respond to that good news that's being made known? Now, we kind of just went through the passage, right? But I want you to kind of step back now from this. And just imagine what it's like to be a fly in that room in that synagogue. Here comes Jesus, the hometown boy. We, we knew him as Joseph's son, the carpenter's son, right? And he's been gone for a while. God's been doing something in his life. In fact, he's become famous. We heard about him up in, up in Capernaum. And he's back. And so, you know, we think, God, he has something to say. So the, you know, the, the Torah attendant, he hands him the scriptures. 
And Jesus opens up the book of Isaiah, and he knows exactly what he's looking for. By the way, just a, a short excursus real quickly. Jesus was not illiterate. He knew what he was looking for in the, in the scroll of Isaiah. He goes and finds it. So, I mean, maybe he didn't go to rabbi school or whatever else that was going on there, but he knew how to read. So he was in God's Word, and he finds this passage, and he reads it, and he, and he tells us, he tells us it's, it's powerful, it's prophetic, it's promise of restoration and deliverance, and then he rolls it up and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and everybody's looking at him. And he knows everybody's looking at him. He says, and today this scripture has been filled in your presence. And if Jesus had a mic, he would have gone, bam, mic drop. Boom. One sentence sermon. You want to know what this scripture's about? It's about me. It's about what God sent me to do. Yeah, 700 plus years ago, Isaiah wrote these words. But they were my words. And now I've just delivered them before you. So you know what I came to do. Now I'll tell you what. That's a pretty gutsy thing to say. It's all, it takes a lot of chutzpah, right? And if it ain't true, it's either arrogant or delusional. It's either arrogant or delusional if it's not true. But if you want to know what Jesus thought about himself, who he was, read these words. And by the way, that's why we as Christians make such a big deal about having a faith and a relationship with Jesus. Because that's who he said he was. And they're his words, not ours. And for a brief moment, these words of grace and hope are actually received with grace. And I, I actually wish that whoever split the scriptures into the verses would have made this just its own verse. Because the first half of 22 says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. I mean, they were going, man, this is amazing. These are amazing, gracious words that he is speaking. God is speaking through this guy. But then all of a sudden, kind of a weird thing happens. It's kind of like a, a boomerang effect. The reality of Jesus' former station and role in town comes back. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And Jesus' legitimacy is questioned. Now here's the thing. I'm sure Joseph actually had a probably pretty good reputation in Nazareth. The scripture says in, in Matthew uh, 1, 19, he was a righteous man. And Jesus, as we know, as the scripture has revealed, is not actually his physical son. But Joseph, I hate to, you know, Joseph was a regular Joe. He was just an everyday guy. He was the town carpenter. He was the guy you'd call when you needed your fence to be fixed or your roof to be patched or your plow to be put back together. And Jesus was his apprentice. Jesus went with him everywhere he goes. So you see what's happening here? 
<laughs> what? Jesus, the repair guy, says he's the, he's the Messiah? Wasn't he just fixing my roof six months ago? Didn't I, didn't I call him to, to fix my fence or put my plow together? And they are blinded, blinded by the thought that he's just a regular guy. How could this be the Messiah? See, Jesus hadn't changed. His character was still the same. He just changed roles here. And they were blinded by the thought that someone who would actually serve them was also the actual servant of the Lord. Perhaps they forgot that David himself, the patriarchal king, started out as a shepherd boy himself. That man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, as 1 Samuel 16, 7 says. But there's another issue here. You see, his message, his message was one that says you have a need for somebody else to do something for you because you're in spiritual poverty. You're in bondage. You have eyes that need to be opened. And it exposed their spiritual need. And as they're questioning, what are you saying, Jesus? Jesus actually exposes their hearts. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. By the way, that's not in any of the proverbs. That's just a local saying. And you will tell me, do you do here in your hometown what you, we have heard that you did in Capernaum? All throughout the Gospels, Jesus has this really irritating ability to know the hearts of men and women. He knows what's going on inside of them, even if they won't say it exactly. And he reflects back to them what's going on in their hearts and their minds. <laughs> what you're saying we need healing, Jesus? Well, heal yourself, buddy. What did you say you're the Messiah? Well, then do what we heard you did up in Capernaum. Come on, heal somebody. Show us. Prove it. Prove that you're the guy. Jump through our hoops. You know what's interesting? And we're going to see this if we continue in Luke, there are going to be many times where Jesus is actually going to heal people in the presence of his critics. And it never brings any of them to faith. They just find more reason and more fault to criticize Jesus. So I think we make a fallacy and say, well, if Jesus would just do something, then people would believe. No, not necessarily. And Jesus warns them of their contempt for God's grace. Verses 24 through 27. I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, 
the Syrian. Jesus' words come out of Israel's unfaithful, idolatrous history. A time when they were either trying to worship other gods or they were trying to make God a custom God, if you will. And the two most powerful prophets, Elijah and Elisha, are on the scene calling people's, people back to God. And I mean, they're doing miracles that are, you know, movies with, with special effects would just would love to have. But these are real. I mean, we're talking about calling fire down from the sky type, type of miracles, right? And, but even as they were calling God's people back to himself, they were ignoring him. They were ignoring these prophets. They were ignoring God's call to come back to him. And here's the point. When Israel rejects God's prophets, when they reject his word, God sends them elsewhere even to the Gentiles, even to their rivals. With Elijah, he speaks the word and the land will not have rain for three and a half years. And God sends him to a place called Zarephath, which is in Sidon, which is a Gentile and rival kingdom. And Elijah is there and he calls this widow by faith who's got just a little bit of flour in her jar, a little bit of oil. says, I'll tell you what. God has sent me here. I know you think you're going to eat and you're going to die, you and your son. But feed me first and you'll never lack. And for three and a half years, there was always flour and oil in those jars. Never had to go to Walmart, ever. So for three and a half years, God provided And then for Elisha, he speaks the word of healing to Naaman, who was an enemy general from Syria. He had raided Israel many times. And God sends him down to Elisha. And Elisha speaks the word and says, go dip in the Jordan seven times. Now he, if you read the story, he's reluctant. He thinks, well, that's all I have to do? There are better, better rivers back at home. But his servants say, no, this is a man of God. Listen to him. And so he does. And he has leprosy. And he comes out healed. And the scripture says that his skin was like that of a newborn baby. But not only is he healed, he's saved. Because what Naaman does is he puts his faith in the living God as much as he does. In fact, he gathers gathers up earth in the area and says, I want to put this earth down on the ground so that I can worship this God. He, is, he is, has put his faith in the living God, in Yahweh. But the history lesson is clear. In rejecting the grace and the salvation that's in front of you, God will go to others who will respond. Others that Jews oftentimes consider less worthy. There's also the big picture, right? That God's plan of salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for the whole world. It's for the whole world. And those who believe that they're close to God, who believe in their own goodness and spiritual pedigree, and they don't respond and repent in faith in Jesus, they will be left out. 
They will be left out of God's salvation. And the hometown crowd was not happy with Jesus' words. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew he was speaking words of judgment upon them. So in verse 28, Jesus' words create a deadly reaction. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now I'm glad you all show greater restraint when I preach a sermon you don't like. But literally Jesus is driven out of town like he's a criminal, like he's something blasphemous, like this is something we got to get rid of. And it's literally a lynch mob. And they're going to throw him off this cliff to kill him. Maybe throw him off and then stone him. But they are ready to end his life. And by the way, (laughs) just remember, these are the people that Jesus grew up with. This is what they're willing to do to their hometown son. Because they don't like what he has to say. Good news is not always received as good news. And the truth is, Jesus has come to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. And this is kind of a foreshadowing of the cross, but the time is not right, and it's not in this manner. And I don't know exactly what this looked like. But read verse 30. He walked right through the crowd and went his way. I mean, the crowd had him up against the cliff, and he just went right through, like Moses parting the Red Sea. I have no idea exactly what that looked like. But here's what I do know, is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And he is in charge, and he is in charge of the timing of when he's going to give up his life. Even against an angry crowd. It just shows his authority and his power. But Jesus has gone public. (laughs) He's made his mission known. He pulls out the script that God wrote 700 plus years ago. And the response is not great because they put Jesus in a box. Now what's the message for us here? Two things. First of all, this message, it sings. It sings because Jesus really is the anointed one. He really is the one who brings good news. He really is the one to come to meet our spiritual poverty, to open our eyes, to set us free from the things that enslave us, to set us free from our sin, our failure, our hurt, our hate, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, oppression, our addiction. Death, whatever else it might be, He is coming to set us free. And let me tell you, even if you put your faith in Christ, He is still setting you free from those things. There might be some things that are holding on to you, and He wants to continually call you to be set free from that. But He came in order that we might experience the Lord's favor. The favor of the living God to be His child, To know His love and His care, His forgiveness, the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, the joy of the Lord, knowing who He is, knowing who we are, and just His everyday 
presence in our life. He wants to be active in every area of our life. We might experience him. That's how this message sings. That's what Jesus said, that's what I came to do. That's what I came to do. But this message also sings, stings also. It stings in this sense. To reject this message because of an imperfect messenger or because we put him in a box or her in a box is to reject God. Because he exposes our need. He might offend our sense of independence. Our sense of not needing anyone, of wanting to be self-sufficient. Or even just our desire to not have anyone tell us what to do. We want to be our own boss. We want to be our own God. But here's the thing. There is no other provision. God hasn't given anything else. He's given us His Son. He's given us His Son. Jesus says it very plainly in His Gospel of John, verses 17 through 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. And I wonder if there's someone here today that needs to be set free. They need to be set free from their sin, from their sense that God is against them, their sense of fear that if I die, I don't know what's going to happen, a sense of, <laughs> I just feel like I'm all alone on my, myself. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and might have it to the full. The verse before this, these verses I just read, says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe today you will be set free by putting your faith in Jesus. Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to have you experience His forgiveness. Know, know that you have life now and for eternity. And know that you are His child. And then to continue to set you free from the other things that might be holding you and binding you. And if that's you, I, I want to invite you to come up at the end of this service, maybe while we're singing the last song. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. And I'm not trying to embarrass you. But I, I want you to be set free and experience the freedom that Jesus gives. And there's some of us who've been walking with Christ, but there, there is something that is holding on to us. It might be a sin. It might be an addiction. It might be hurt, anger, or bitterness. And we need to be set free from that. I don't know. And I'm not telling you that we're going to have some of our elders up here and they're going to pray for you. And it might be just the start of a journey to be set free. But I know that Jesus does want to set you free.
in order that you can serve Him with your whole heart. But that's why our Savior came. To set us free. That's why we sang that song earlier. If you got chains, He's a chain breaker. And He wants to set us free. So let me pray for us, and then Aaron, would you and the worship team come and close us? So Lord Jesus, these are your words, and I pray that you would be setting someone free today. Set someone free today who needs to put their faith in you for the very first time, who needs to surrender their life to you, because they're finding that they're living their own life and it's not working. And Lord Jesus, there's some of us who have walked with you for a while, but there's, there's just something that's, that's clinging to us and it is it is draining the life out of us. Would you come and set that man, that woman free today and as we could come alongside of them as the body of Christ and bear their burden. But I pray, Lord, that you will give us grace to surrender those things to you and let you do your work in us because you are a mighty Savior and you are mighty to save. So come, Lord, and do your work among us. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we respond here.